I can understand the outcry from the Western yeah. perspective to a certain degree. That's how the machinery operates in yeah. that sense. You know, everyone is going to use their own form of symbolic propaganda to try to rein in whoever they feel is pushing beyond their borders. I get that. What surprised people here a little bit is how the Muslims jumped on board of that because there was a sense of agitation on their part of not being able to explain their position vis-a-vis -vis this. Now, if they feel very uncomfortable about Fatih's conquest of Istanbul, we're in trouble because we can then go back in a lot of Islamic history and become uncomfortable about a lot of things, including Fatal al Makkah. We might as well go to India and tell Modi, hey, you want to share the Makkah the Kaaba with us? I mean, what happens here? Assalamu alaikum everyone and welcome to today's episode of the Islam Trinity Unscripted podcast, lockdown version. We are using the magic of modern technology to Skype in someone all the way from Istanbul. Uh, our esteemed guest today is uh, Dr. Yaqub Ahmed. He's a uh, historian in uh, Ottoman history and he's uh, an intellectual historian. Uh, doesn't just mean that he's a historian who's intellectual as well, but hey, but uh, he's a history of, uh, let's say, thought, and particular Muslim thought. Uh, Assalamu alaikum, Dr. Yaqub. Sorry for that pitifully short uh, bio. I've got a massive uh, paragraph here in front of me, but I, I my, wish it was shorter. It's I my wish uh, shorter. it's my policy, just for your own tarbiyah and your own uh, kind of uh, your own nafs as well to yeah, uh, <laughs> to shorten I, things. Don't no, crazy. But well, uh, obviously, Thank we'll you. put all the bells and whistles when we when we share this. Inshallah. How's it going? Okay. Alhamdulillah, I'm doing okay. It looks sunny it's, in uh, uh, sunny in Istanbul. It is exceptionally sunny, as you can see the noor is shining mm. on my face on this side. Is that the noor uh, <laughs> reflecting off the domes of uh, Hagia Sophia, or it, it could be, <laughs> it could be. It depends what side of the what side of the uh, conversation you're on. <laughs> <laughs> what uh, what's the mood like over there in Istanbul? Um, at the moment, it's pretty mellow. I mean, like um, there is an assumption that here people are conflicted, mm. but they all pulling together. They all have a They've accepted uh, the position and it's been going on for a while. So Turks are not shocked by this. So yeah. on the ground, I mean, generally Muslims are pretty satisfied and uh, people need to understand the history of why they're satisfied. So at the moment here, um, amongst the Muslims, there's a lot of excitement. Mashallah. I mean, uh, uh, one of the reasons I've wanted to get you on for a while is because my history is very bad. <laughs> and uh, I always take the, I, I know kind of in, on a cognitive level that, you know, it's important to learn history and all that kind of stuff. Right. But I don't mm -hmm. know if it's just, you know, from GCSE history days and not being too engaged. Uh, I always try to, uh, as an adult, you know, speak uh, to Muslim historians and even other historians mm -hmm. kind of, uh, who who had a passion for history you know, to try and, uh, and kick me into learning a bit more about history. Um, so and I don't want to just talk about Hagia Sophia, but Hagia Sophia is in the news, obviously. Sure. Uh, I think this week it's going to be opening officially, is that correct, as a masjid? 24th of July, yeah. which is the Treaty of Lausanne. So it's actually timed yeah. perfectly. Yeah. yeah. So can you tell us about that? What is, what's the significance of that date? Because I heard it in a meeting today, but I didn't... So the treaty, the treaty of Lausanne is when the the borders of the Turkish nation state were actually constructed and decided, and um, mm. it sort of put into motion the the end of the Ottoman Caliphate and the emergence of the Turkish Republic. So it's very symbolic, and to be, I don't know if they timed it for that, but if they have, I mean yeah. that's very significant. They probably Almost have. I mean, it's a, if it's a significant date. <laughs> 
Yeah, but for the Joma to yeah. fall on that is actually exceptionally, yeah. you know, fortuitous if that's how they planned it. Yeah. I mean, who knows? Yeah. So it's opening at Joma. And that pro this so probably the, podcast will be going out on Friday, probably for the Friday night, inshallah. So yeah, so timely by it then. will it will be on Juma. Um, I think five hundred people are um, invited inside because of the COVID situation. Yeah. Um, we're not quite sure what the outside arrangements might be like. I mean, so far Turkey's done pretty well with COVID. We've mm. only had four to five thousand deaths, and everyone's been quite compliant with the masks and the social distancing. Awesome. On that day, though, I mean, there's a lot of excitement, so who knows how that will work out. But uh, we hope mm. that, you know, people will just um, do what's necessary and then go home. I hope so. Well, I'll make it easy. Um, you alluded to the fact that there's a few perspectives on this issue, right? Yeah. You said, you know, yeah, yeah. what side of the conversation yeah, yeah. fall on. Um, mm. Can you describe why this is uh, such a uh, maybe controversial in some circles move? This uh, Because mm -hmm. depending how it's framed... You know, as far as I know, it's, you know, it used to be a masjid, then it turned into a museum, then it, you know, it's become a masjid again. But obviously, people draw that kind of, that starting point, uh, different, uh, yeah, different I points mean, in history. In, Tur in Turkey, I think most people were caught off, they were surprised at the level of um, sort of like Muslim agitation in different parts of the world, mainly in the West, that happened. Mm -hmm. Because the, the conversation here is not a, the idea of turning a church into a mosque. That had already happened in the Fatih. The idea was, was it legal for the Turkish yeah. Republic in the 1930s to evoke the mosque status from the building, which had been a mosque for 500 years, and make it a museum? So as far as they were concerned, it wasn't the idea of we're returning the church into a mosque, but the fact that it was illegal in the 1930s to turn the mosque into a museum. So it had always remained a mosque, and that's the contention point in Turkey. So... The problem is, is that people seem to have a very limited memory of the layered complexities of the building. The building is Fatih's conquest, the 19th century Islamization projects that were taking place in the Ottoman domains, the formation of the Turkish Republic, and then that reaction to turning it into a secular symbol. And mm. then Muslims throughout that time trying to get this symbol back. And, and then the current political situation here. So there seems to be a blind spot regarding Fatih's reign, a blind spot regarding 500 years of Ottoman history, a blind spot of Turkish history, and a blind spot regarding Turkish politics. So when you see the layers that go into this mm -hmm. building, um, it surprised people here on the ground of that sort of attack that came from the outside without looking at all of these things or taking all of these things into consideration. So in Turkey, for example, it's mainly related to what happened in the 30s. Right? It's this contestation between the secular republic and Muslims and how this symbol was taken away from them, which was the mosque of the Ottoman domains. Not, you know, um, whereas in, in what happened, which is quite interesting, is in other parts of the world quite recently, they tried to undercut that narrative and go straight to Fatih and mm. question Fatih's conquest, which also surprised the Turks, that the idea of questioning Fatih's conquest was unthinkable in Turkey. Nobody does that here. I mean, even Ekrem... Emamalu, who is the mayor of Istanbul, bought two paintings of Fatih quite recently in Sotheby's. Mm -hmm. So the idea of questioning Fatih's conquest was unthinkable in Turkey, but it happened um, abroad. And um, the idea was now to use a sort of like moral lens of today and go back in time and say, well, actually, we're not happy with that conquest. Um, that That's a debate I think we need to look at in terms of how Muslims in the West feel and how they sort of become sort of under the influence of the liberal zeitgeist and are feeling this sort of pressure of of trying to negotiate with that form, where it's, that's not happening here. So, mm. I mean, you know, I think in other parts of the Muslim world who are coming from particular 
educated backgrounds, they might have to ask themselves the question of what's going on here. And maybe that's a question we might have to ask, which is something I found interesting, which is the fact that the, the, the agitation was coming from places like the United States and the, and the UK, um, and less so from places like Turkey, Pakistan, um, and other parts of the Muslim world. So I think that's interesting because I never expected that. Um, and the fact that that's happened is an, it's an indication of, as a number, where, how do we now hold ourselves as a body collective? And mm. what are the opinions? Who are the dominant opinions? And who represents whose interests? And what the interests are being represented? So for, for us here, that that's the sentiment on the ground here, and Amali's explaining the sentiment on the ground, that's what the surprise was at. So would you say it's less controversial actually within Turkey? Even though, uh, I mean, it it, w- it would have been more controversial, say, ten years ago. But mm. I mean, I give an example. If this had happened ten years ago, we would have expected a military coup. The fact that that hasn't wow. happened is an is an mm. indication that actually certain segments of the Turkish polity are pulling together, including the military. So this is not just something mm. which is being pushed by the so-called Islamists. This is also being pushed by the Turkish Republic or the institutions of the Republic. This is a change in region. This is a dangerous region, and they have particular intentions. I mean, I was speaking to somebody only quite recently, and people here are expecting some level of reprisals, you know, and that way? could happen. We don't know yet. There could be all sorts of sanctions that could be pushed mm. in Turkey if Turkey has any forms of ambitions in the region. With this becoming that symbolic point, I mean, what's interesting in the narrative in Turkey when you speak to Muslims in Turkey, the idea is, is that Fatih conquers Istanbul. And Fatih lays a marker to the West to say Islam is here. And then when the Turkish Republic is formed, they turn it into a museum to say we're going to stay in our lane, mm. right? And we're not going to go anywhere. And now that this um, has returned back to the idea of it being a masjid, the idea is does Turkey have ambitions? And there's a lot of conjecture around this. Um, and that's what the political analysts talk about. But that could make various actors in the region quite agitated. So we're aware of that yeah. sentiment. And so what we're trying to do to some degrees, downplay that sentiment, but the the Twitter sphere is kicking off in an emotive manner and making everyone quite paranoid, which is not helpful in some ways. I think that's what Twitter was created for in the first place, though. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad I'm not on it. <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, just controversy and scandal and all that kind of yeah, yeah. all that kind of good stuff. Uh, you mentioned narrative, though. I think that that's a key phrase here, right? Because it mm. depends how you frame it in your coverage of that thing. If you frame it as um, you know, as maybe some people in the West are doing, you know, a previous church, the the, the seat yeah. of the Greek Orthodox, you yeah. know, uh, the Byzantine Empire, the Greek Orthodox That's Church, right. that has been converted into a mosque. <laughs> you know, so well, I mean, it, it makes sense if, yeah. if you, if, uh, you know, the, the outcry makes sense if it's that's how it's presented. Yeah, that, I mean... I can understand the outcry from the Western yeah. perspective to a certain degree. That's how the machinery operates in yeah. that sense. You know, everyone is going to use their own form of symbolic propaganda to try to rein in whoever they feel is pushing beyond their borders. I mm. get that. What surprised people here a little bit is how the Muslims jumped on board of that because there was a sense of agitation on their part of not being able to explain their position vis-a-vis this. Now, if mm. they feel very uncomfortable about Fatih's conquest of Istanbul, we're in trouble because we can then go back in a lot of Islamic history and become uncomfortable about a lot of things, including Fatal Makkah. We might as well go to India and tell Modi, hey, you want to share the Makkah the Kaaba with us? I mean, what happens here? So yeah. the, the point I'm trying to make is that um, if people have a, a lack of understanding of what happened in Fatih's period, then by all means, let's talk about Fatih's conquest of Istanbul. And that's what we should be doing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but to take a moral lens and then say, and take it back in time, I think might be a little troublesome, especially because 
the historical debates need to take first take place first before any sort of assumption should be made and that hasn't happened here yeah so what is the historical significance of this uh, of this building you know i've been, i've heard it mentioned as you know uh, maybe some people from an apologetic or a defensive lens saying well actually it wasn't you know really in use it wasn't really a kind of a buzzing church it was more of a political symbol like you know the white house or whatever and that you know when uh, when the, the muslims came that was just like the de facto seat of power is the biggest building in the world or something like that and what um, is the significance historically is that is there is there any basis to that historically not necessarily. I mean, it was a place of worship that can't be denied. But when Fatih mm. conquered, so the question first is: Is that Fatih's conquest of Istanbul? Is it a surrender? Is it an absolute conquest, mm-hmm. or is it terms of agreement? So terms is like uh, Omar bin Khattab and and Uquds, where the Christians they 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 signed terms, right? Yeah. And on many occasions, Salah al-Din had done the same. The people signed terms. Part of the terms and the agreements was fine. We're going to leave certain buildings alone. Absolute mm-hmm. conquest was the refusal of surrender, and so. You come into the city, you take the city, and everything now belongs to you. Mm. In that sense, if Fatih has conquered Istanbul in absolute conquest, which is what Halil Inaljik, the Ottoman historian, is saying, it was an absolute conquest, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. then it comes down to the fact that the, the, the building itself, um, is it, does it come under the, the conditions of booty? If it's mm. booty, does it belong to the masses, which is the Muslims by and large, or does a fifth of the booty of the empire belong to Fatih, which means that Ayasofya fell under his domains? That's the, the issue here. Now, what we see is that there are three issues that take place. One is that either the Christians upkeep it themselves, but their empire had collapsed, so there was no way they could upkeep it. Uh-huh. Either the Muslims upkeep it for them, which there's no, the Muslims are under no, like, you know, obligation to do that for the, for the, for the Christians. Or Christian powers from outside upkeep it on behalf of the uh, Orthodox Church, which they weren't going to do because the, the Latin Empire was going after uh, the Eastern Roman Empire anyway. So yeah. to some degree, many Christian entities had worked with the Ottomans to take down the take down Istanbul. This is known. So mm. so what happens now is we look at Fatih taking the building um, because it's, to some degree it's difficult to know whether he took it because he saw it as Fatal Makkah or he took it because there's no way he was going to fund the upkeep of the building for the Christians. But what's mm. interesting is that what we see in Ottoman history is that firstly, Fatih... Um, what what does Inalji call it? Inalji calls it istimalet. Istimalet is a culture in which you provide um, concessions and you give rewards and you give gifts to the community that you conquered. Mm. And so Fatih did a lot of that for the Christian community, strengthened the Orthodox Church because the Orthodox Church had become weak. The Orthodox Church then becomes powerful under the Ottomans as a way of, um, you know, the Ottomans being able to use the Orthodox Church as part of its domains to centralize other Christian entities around the domains. Mm-hmm. And um, it's well known that the Christian Orthodox Church um, got a lot of benefits from the Ottomans under Fatih. And then after that, because the Sultan Murad, after that, um, there was a, when Muslims were increasing and going into Greek areas, they were refused to take the Christian churches. They weren't mm-hmm. given the permission to do so. So if that was the culture in the Ottoman domains, what's happened with Hagia Sophia? Hagia Sophia probably was the same symbol as Fatal Makkah, which is, look, we've landed, we're here, yeah. and this is the symbol. And it was not a mosque, it was the mosque, because it was the first main mosque in mm. the domain. So that's how it operated. Now, the question is, is why is it for 500 years the ulama have said nothing? Yeah. I mean, you know, and we're not just talking Istanbul, we're talking across the domains. Why have you, and the ulama had criticized the Ottomans on all sorts of things, even in, including the caliphate. But here they stayed quite silent about it, they used it, continuously used it, and it became 
you know, it wasn't a contentious point. By the 19th century, mm. when uh, we, we start to see that it now becomes the seat of the symbol of the caliphate and the prime mosque of Istanbul. I mean, they call it Hagia Sophia, um, uh, I think it was Jamia Kabira, which is the, the, big, yeah. the great Hagia Sophia. And um, that was the, um, it was the mosque, you know, in that sense. By now, the imagination of it being a church was totally gone. The imagination of it becoming a church happens in World War One when the foreign powers, the Allied forces, occupy Istanbul, and it's the British, the French, the Italians, and the Greeks. And then there's ambitions to take that back and turn it back into a church. So a lot of the imagination regarding the church comes from World yeah. War One and the formation of the nation state. It doesn't go back 500 years of Ottoman history because by then the Orthodox Church had already accepted. So we have a second church here called Zedek Jami. Yeah. It's the second. It was the second most important church to the Orthodox. It's still a mosque. No one talks about that. So you can see where um, Hagia Sophia has gone. My concern is, is that all of this history has gone out the window and we're just like now flooding in with our opinions because that's what Twitter allows us to do. Salam <laughs> guys. Sorry to butt in. Eh? But if you're enjoying this podcast, please head over to islam2nc.com forward slash donate to help us make more. And if you're not enjoying it, head over anyway and help us make better ones. That's a, that's a similar kind of sentiment we see from experts in any field, whether they're medics talking about how you know people are talking regarding the pandemic, whether it's scientists, right. whether it's uh, Islamic law kind of practitioners talking about how Sharia is spoken of, and now right. historians. Okay, there's there's a the the concern is uh, is understandable. You know, when right. you have so much uh, uh, rich history there, and then people are just kind of brushing it aside to 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 use this for kind of political I mean, point scoring. And stuff. I would have been more in tune if people had made a political um, mm. contestation in terms of what's happening in Turkish politics now. That would have made more sense to me. Yeah. But to undercut Fatih's conquest, um, it, it, it doesn't make sense. But I understand why they're doing it, because they, they want to undercut the Turkish president by going back to the beginning and undercutting Fatih. But I think that's what's helpful here, because um, we lack a lot of these sort of like information of the points that they're trying to push home. So um, they cut, they're undercutting 500 years of Ottoman history. Yeah. Do you think that there's a, um, I don't want this to sound kind of a conspiracy theoristy, <laughs> that's not even a word, but uh, do you think there's a conscious effort to separate, uh, on one hand, Muslims from their broader kind of umatic legacy and mm. history, and on the other hand, um, Erdogan or the, the kind of AK party now, trying mm. to revive some of that thing for a, for a particular purpose? I mean... I'm not too sure. I mean, it, the argument can swing a anyway. I mean, mm. does has Islam been instrumentalized in the past? Probably. Will, is Islam instrumentalized? Yes. Will Islam be instrumentalized in the future? Probably. But at the same time, it doesn't take away the fact that I mean, Islam is not simply a religion. And in that sense, because of that political component, that nature mm -hmm. of 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 how Islam configures symbols and acts of symbolism and rituals and politics and so forth is always going to bring this to the table. But the way that Islam is is understood politically is very different than the instrumentalization of other religions in that context. So um, Khalifas have used Islamic sentiment in the past. Of course, they'll do that. It makes sense because that's how you, you use emotion to try to rally the troops. So if yeah. that's done by any other given leader, it doesn't surprise me. I mean, mm -hmm. we shouldn't be shocked by that. Are the Turks doing that now? I mean, it's, it's difficult for me to say. I'm sure a lot of people believe they are doing that. But in the end of the day, um, it's not a sentiment that doesn't exist in the mass themselves and to 
sort of undercut the mass by assuming that they're just ignorant and they don't understand what's going on. It's also unfair. Mm. Um, you know, they, people in Turkey seem to be quite educated regarding their history. They know what's going on. What about outside the, the Turkish kind of uh, sphere? I mean, I think about myself. For me, um, I mean, history of the, the, the influence of the Ottomans uh, and that part of the kind of history is not really, mm-hmm. if I can think back, anything I learned about that, it was just maybe mm-hmm. accidental or, right. you know, by the way, there's these Ottomans as well. And recently, right. you know, Artrul and these types of series. I mean, I saw the first series, uh, you mm-hmm. know, really interested in that. Right. But then I thought, it's just too, too many episodes yeah. for, you know, to yeah. catch up, to keep up. But do you think that there's been a, a conscious separation of uh, Muslims from learning of their history and, and uh, during the modern period? I think, I mean, I agree with Talal Asad when he says under modernity, some there have been some horrendous breaks mm. in, in our consciousness regarding our own Islamic past. And I think that's evident. When I spoke about Hagia Sophia, and we, I mean, I don't want to be somebody who continuously talking about Hagia Sophia, but let's just look mm. at Ottoman history. So the Hagia Sophia issue is a disconnection from Fatih, disconnection of 500 years of history, disconnection of Turkish history, disconnection of Turkish politics. I mean, that that's problematic in terms mm. of, as Muslims, having that many blind spots in their memory regarding something of this magnitude, when we could have remembered that that was the mosque of the Caliphate. So the fact that we don't even appreciate that sentiment, where forget being detached from the history, we're even detached from the sentiment of people in terms of how they yeah. feel and how we should speak of them. So people are speaking of Muslims in this part of the world like they have a right to speak of people in this part of the world, forgetting how, what they've been through in the last 80, 90 years. And they've yeah. been through a lot. So I'm not saying um, I'm a representative of these people, but I certainly understand the sentiment yeah. now living here. And I'm very careful when I'm speaking about peoples who I don't represent. And then we will say, but we're Muslim, we belong to the ummatic paradigm. But then we need to ask ourselves that if we're representatives of the ummah, surely then we should represent their interests and not our own self-interest and our own fears. We should represent how the ummah feel. And if the ummah in different parts of the Muslim world or the Western world are afraid, I think that's a better question to ask. Why are they afraid? What is their nervousness? What is the agitation coming from where they felt the need to apologize for this subject area? Mm. So in that sense, that's what Hagia Sophia made me interested about, which is the agitation is coming from a particular space, which is why, why, why are you upset? I'm upset because it shouldn't have been like that. Why shouldn't it have been like that? Because that's not what we Muslims do. Okay, why do you feel the need to do that? Right? Why do you need... So in the past, conservative Muslims were accused of being nostalgic about the past. But now yeah. we're getting to a position, as I said, under the influence of the liberal zeitgeist, where an equal level of nostalgia and, you know, idealization is taking place in terms of what Islam ought to be. That's equally problematic. So we need to come to some sort of middle ground and ask ourselves, what is it that we want? Because at the moment, all we're doing is is tearing the house down from inside. Yeah, and, 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 and what this Islam ought to be... It, it, Invariably in many circles, not to accuse anyone in particular, but mm-hmm. it tends to be created, constructed based on a, a kind of white Western Eurocentric kind of horizon that, you know, this is this is what is normal, this is what is appropriate, this is what is fair, this is what is progress, right. this is what is, you know, modern. And you, my, my position to that is it's very possible that there are many concepts in Islam that negotiate and can... Uh, look very similar to other worldviews and liberalism and socialism Mm. and authoritarianism and so forth. But my particular opinion is is that Islam should stand independent. Um, Islam is Islam. And my concern is, and I've been speaking to some of my friends in England, 
so I don't like coming on these mediums because I'm a very private person. But mm. and I find these mediums quite intellectually toxic. But we're here, and I've been forced by many Muslims to say I should give an opinion, and I'm giving it. Hesitantly, Just to clarify, you don't mean uh, the medium Islam to UNC? No, no. <laughs> no, I, I like just, a... no, I just generally mean, you know, like as a... <laughs> I just generally mean, you know, like I, I found social media as a space yeah. a little problematic because I work with Muslims on the day-to-day. I teach them on the day-to-day. I can see them evolving on the day-to-day. They can yeah. ask me on the day-to-day. And that's helpful because you can actually invest in human beings and see the development. Now, on the social media platform, that's a little bit problematic because yeah, we have a yeah. gramophone and we just shout as loud as we can. And it can be quite problematic because there's no human investment taking place. So my concern is, is that my friends were telling me that, look, Muslims are leaving Islam and they're concerned about that. Now, if you're going to try to save all your soldiers, you're going to end up killing mm-hmm. all your soldiers. So we're going to have to make a decision of where we're going to go from here because there is, we don't need to defend Islam, is my position. Now, that might be a very you know, ignorant position, but the position I have is Islam defends itself because Allah will protect his deen. Yeah. Right? I wish more people actually followed that kind of, uh, because the opposite kind of side uh, extreme to fall into is the kind of Messiah complex. I have to say something. I have to, you know. Well, exactly. My concern is, is that there's an assumption that we are the the people who who are going to defend Islam. Like, that's a very Mm. arrogant position to hold in the modern period. Mm. I mean, in the past, the ulama had the position that they were the guardians of the faith. But we're not acting as guardians. We're acting as people who are defending Islam because Islam is defending. Because there's who the hell are we to do that? We shouldn't be doing that. And if every Muslim leaves Islam, the Izza of Islam doesn't diminish. It's our Izza that diminishes in that context. You know what I mean? So in that sense, Allah doesn't need us. We need Allah. And so we shouldn't have to feel this defensive to the point that we have to continuously defend Islam to whoever it is that's attacking us. Islam can stand independent. We should ask ourselves what that is. And Islam is a a matrix which is very complicated that has plurality within it. I'm okay with that. But let's let's not um, feel so suffocated to the point that there's a level of fear. Because what are we doing? Are we trying to defend the community or are we trying to defend Islam? Which is it? Because mm. at the moment, I think my concern is, is that the community is taking precedent over Islam itself because of yeah. the fear of what we're seeing, what's happening to our communities and to the Ummah by and And it's natural because that's a human thing. You can see it in front of you unraveling. But that doesn't mm. mean Islam is going to unravel. Today, you might see an unraveling. In 20 years' time, Islam might be alive and kicking to another generation and they may take it forward. Yeah. So I think we have to be a little careful. And so my concern is that when I'm speaking to a lot of young people, that there's a lot of yelling and screaming going on, but a lot of listening. And we shouldn't listen to respond. We should listen to understand. And we're not doing yeah. that. So, but that's my two pennies worth anyway. Yeah, I mean, it's very, uh, very beneficial. It reminds me of, uh, I was doing, as I mentioned, doing some research on you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> not in a creepy way <laughs> or anything, but uh, I came across this... Um, talk about decolonizing history yeah and um that what you're describing just now it sounds essentially like a decolonial process right so to separate um separate the the pressures that cause us to put lenses between us and islam or you know uh let islam kind of stand on its own legs uh, as a as a paradigm as a a metaphysics as a epistemology you know, right. as a whole entire philosophy and, and, and way and theory a way to describe things. Right. Um, how do you go about doing that? You know, and you mentioned uh, you have students yeah. on you know the human investment. Um, I mean, on Islam Twenty One C, our kind of vision is to try and uh, mm. use the the digital medium, uh, mm. digital content, to try and 
supplement mm. to try and do some long-term mm. kind of uh, impact in people, right? Because sure. we have other sister projects that you know that, mm. that deal with tarbiya. I mean, our broader movement, you can say, is about tarbiya, is about nurturing, right. is about cultivating right. uh, the next generation and ourselves as well. Um, but in the in the online space, you know, what I'm really interested in on Islam Trinity is making Muslims feel confident in their Muslim skin as right. uh, and being being grateful for Islam. Right. Yeah, and I, I think to some degree we have to be very, um, we have to trust the culture of Islam. Mm -hmm. So look, um, I say this to my students uh, quite openly, and one of the things I say to my students, and I learned this from when I was young, which is there's four things that we have to trust in, in regards to the learning of Islam. The first one is sincerity, absolute sincerity. We have to be sincere, but sincere to who? Who's the sincerity to? When you look at Surah Ikhlas, the, I think... From what my understanding, Surah Ikhlas is the only Surah in the Quran where the word of the Surah is not in the Surah itself, right? <laughs> so what does sincerity mean? Sincerity is that verse in itself, which is your sincerity to Allah Ta'ala, right? So fundamentally as a Muslim, you have to be sincere to your relationship with your Lord. And if that's not the basis of what you, you, you're doing, then mm -hmm. we're in trouble. The second thing is, is knowledge. We have to have knowledge and we have to increase our knowledge as a community, as a collective, invest in people who, have, who want to... Go for knowledge, learn for knowledge, because if we don't have that intellectual property, we're in trouble. Yeah. But knowledge is useless without sincerity. If it's knowledge without sincerity, then what's the point of the knowledge? It's egotistical. And I always say to my students that if you um, have humility, if you look for validation in front of people, then it leads to narcissism. But if you lead for validation in front of Allah, it always leads to humility. Allah and that Allah. comes from the sincerity, right? Mm. The next part is if you've got knowledge, what's the point of knowledge? It's to speak the haq, yani. and what's haq? And this is like we have a whole culture of what the haq is, of speaking the haq, of giving da'wah, of learning and so forth. And if you're going to carry the haq, you've got to be brave. And I'm not saying to be stupid and jump in front of a bus. I mean, everyone knows that. But, you know, to some degree, we... we Unless you're saving we, someone's life. <laughs> that, that's true. But to some degree, you know, we look up to people like Malcolm X. Now, why do we look up to a, a, a character like Malcolm X as a symbol? Because we perceive him as being brave with his words. So in that degree, you try to instill that in my students. So they can understand that when they're reading the tradition, they're not embarrassed of it. When yeah. they're reading words that are demonized, they're not embarrassed of it. They actually understand it. And in a controlled environment, we can give them a tight understanding of what it is and let them debate, let them speak, let them think. So that um, they're not uncomfortable with their Islamic past and they're not uncomfortable about the world they live in today. They deserve yeah. to be here. Allah says so. So who cares what everyone else thinks? Yeah, Allah Akbar. I mean, words, especially words, as you mentioned, the, the, we need to recognize the power of words and the, the, the impact and the bags that they come with. And because yeah. if somebody just switches that thing on in their mind, then so many problems down the line kind of uh, get fixed or don't become problems anymore. Because you're thinking, well, why are you framing something like that in the first place? Who, who, who wrote the question? Uh, who wrote the motion of that debate? Who wrote that headline? Well, the, you made a very valid point about words. Quran are words of Allah Ta'ala. In Arabic, words are very specific. Yeah. So, I mean, you, you saw that video when I gave a whole explanation of the word Iqra. To mm. my students, I gave an explanation of the word Shahada. When you're saying Ashadu, what are you testifying to? You're a Shahid, you saw something. What did you see? Well, you, you know, the idea is you're a person who has the knowledge. Knowledge of what? Ashadu Allah ilaha illallah. Okay, so your, your Shahada in itself, the words... You know, Ashadu in itself is very precise in indicating that when you're making this declaration, you're coming from a place of knowledge, not ignorance. So all our young kids should know their shahad and understand what it is. Arabic in that sense, and the Quran in particular, is very precise in its use of words. So we as Muslims should be very precise in understanding when we're reading works, 
what yeah. these words mean and how words and language are used to regulate the way they think and how words are taken away from us and how we can't use words because we're afraid of it. And if we're afraid to use words, it leaves our consciousness. So when it leaves our consciousness, it no longer exists. Then are we surprised that people are confused? So hey. it reminds me of, uh, I was reflecting the other day on the ayah, I think it was Nuh salam or one of the prophets um, speaking about the, the idols that his people worshipped. He said, right. um, in here, in here, asma un yeah. an, uh, about <laughs> These are just right. words that you've yeah. that you've named, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you and your yeah. forefathers. Yeah, but, and you know, yeah. this is a, um, you know, I think language is very powerful, and I think mm. in the West, to a certain degree, when we're looking at what we said, la- narrative, narrative is constructed in a particular language. Yeah, and that that language, I think, we need to really, when we're talking about the decolonialization process, we need to find out what is our language. Or representing yeah. ourselves as Muslims, and we shouldn't feel that inferior. I don't mind the debates, the inter-Muslim debates. I don't mind it. I mean, that's how you get clarity, and no one's gonna, mm. you know, have a monopoly over Islam and its usage of words and language. Fine, I'm okay mm. with that. But we shouldn't feel inferior and afraid. You know, I mean, this is the problem, and I feel like a lot of young people at the moment um, have this hesitancy, and maybe people of my generation need to do a better job, and I take responsibility of that. Mm. Are you? Are you? Uh, I mean, it sounds like uh, uh, some of your your ideas and your Critique of uh, discourse and stuff. It sounds similar, similar to people like Foucault and uh, Edward Said. You mentioned Talal Assad. Mm-hmm. Um, would you see? Would you say see yourself as, as along that similar kind of uh, tradition of t- critique? Um, I think we need to. I think we need to go further. Yeah. <laughs> I think we need to go further. I mean, I mean, they were still speaking from within their tradition. Yeah. So it's an internal criticism. But in the end of the day, there's a lot we can take from that. No no, no problem with that. And we can integrate a lot of their ideas. Mm. But fundamentally, our tradition is important. And our tradition does have a similar culture of um, critique. We just don't appreciate it because it doesn't speak in a language that can be used in yeah. the, the corridors of Western academia. And that's mm. a problem. I mean, I had a student from who studied in a Dalsan Nizam, and he feels like he can't be a historian. Why, why can't you be a historian? I mean, why is that a problem? I mean, you've got skills, you've got tools. You know how mm-hmm. to use them, and we just need to keep on from that. So um, I don't think we should be feeling inferior in terms of our own tradition itself, in terms yeah. of what we're giving the kids. We just need to find a way of making it palatable to the current changing climate and the language that's the dominant language that's being used today. Yeah, subhanAllah. I mean, uh, I just wanted to remark and, and commend you on, on, a, on a, a, a metaphor I heard you use in that decolonial, uh, decolonizing history lecture. You said our parents... In uh, back home, so to speak, they got Islam through osmosis. That's right. Is that the degree that you took? <laughs> that was uh, that. That was the one thing I took. Uh, that was a really good the metaphor. You know, I was thinking that uh, how can we? So osmosis, right? It's, it's actually you know the, the the metaphor runs deeper than uh, you know the the, the surface yeah. level. You know, because so, osmosis is what is 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 the pros the movement of right. of water. Mm-hmm. Of the the purifying agent, right? right. From you know a, a high a low concentration of of any impurity, let's say, into uh, a low a high concentration of impurity. So that kind of uh, while people are growing up, just absorbing, you know, positivity, absorbing a constructive, uh, you know, purifying elements right. of of tayyib and pure elements from exactly. uh, from society around them. And I'm, I mean, I'm always thinking, how can I, how can we do that for our children here? I mean, in in, in the Western world, in uh, living as minorities, one way is kind of bubbles. People set up bubbles and uh, homeschooling and or Islamic schools and that kind of stuff. But 
I'm always thinking of this this osmosis, how to present to the next generation because we might some of us might look down upon uh, our parents, grandparents, and whatever. But truth be told, their iman was probably much stronger, and their relationship with Allah was probably much more intimate, and their worship was probably much more sincere than our worship. You know, even though we we we've acquired cognitive kind of uh, we've acquired information about about Islam, we talk about Islam a lot. Right. They, it feels sometimes that, that people who just grew up around it, just Islam was just the 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 atmosphere which they breathed. They mm-hmm. don't talk about Islam that much. They just do it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, you know, um, when I was young growing up, because um, I, I I sometimes have a go at my students. So when we had the Quran, for example, mm. we would hold the Quran to our chest when we were going to the madrasa, and then the Quran was wrapped up. And then when we took it out, we kissed it and so forth. Now, I didn't know why I did that. My mum just mm. made sure I did that. When my um, friends wanted a bottle of water, I was never allowed to throw it to them. I had to walk over and give it to them. Now, um, a lot of those practices we take for granted in terms of our parents living in Muslim societies. Mm. And that was around them all the time. Now, when they brought it to various Western societies and so forth, um, as children of migrants, um, mm. One of the things we didn't appreciate is that we might have built institutions now, but they were standing outside the picket line of a bucket collecting money. They were the ones who made sure that the food was halal. They were the ones, you know, <clears throat> who were working nine to five and, you know, coming home and trying to make sure that we had Islam. And we underestimate their actual lived experience from mm. coming from Muslim societies. And so I now live in a Muslim society. And there's a lot of problems in the Muslim societies I've lived in, because I've lived in Syria too, and moved around the, the region extensively. Yeah. But having said that, when I hear the Muslim, for example, I take it for granted. When I come to London, I forget that I hear the Muslim five it's times a day, yeah. or that I'm checking the back of packets, or that people come to see me when I'm sick, or somebody just embraces me and gives me a hug, or somebody just says, hey, how you doing? Now, I take that for granted, because in England, I have to make appointments to see my friends. <laughs> now, I, do you know what I mean? Um, now, there's a lot that... that that's going well in British society, American society, mm. Western society in terms of the money we have and so forth. But at the moment, um, I'm trying to understand, and this is why, once again, going to the Hagia Sophia issue, um, h- how do Muslims feel? Because I think the perception that they're projecting in of themselves is there is a fear. They might not say it. They might say we're doing great here. But the perception that they've just pushed out there is one of nervousness and where's that nervousness coming from um so we should be concerned about our kids in terms of the general environment of osmosis is not one that's islamic islam has to find a space or muslims have to find a space within that whereas in muslim societies there's a greater space there are problems granted but there's a greater space of how osmosis operates and um you know that's that's what we need to think about now every different country has its own challenges but Mm. Um, it is what it is. I mean, I, I see my students here and I've alhamdulillah, learned so much from them in terms of how to be. And um, I'm very grateful that they're in my life. I'm very grateful that they are my students. I'm very mm. grateful that I see their tarbiyah and they, they annoy me at times as well. That's not like they don't, but I love them to bits. And I, I, I now know what it means to be invested, living in a Muslim city in which every single day someone says salam alaykum to be. So Salaam. it feels nice. Mm. Something you take for granted. Totally. Yeah. yeah. Totally. 
Assalamualaikum guys, me again, reminding you to head over to islam21c.com forward slash donate to keep the lights on on Islam21c. We pride ourselves on being independent and being funded by the grassroots community. Um, if anyone's interested, uh, by the way, how to uh, you know, um, raise children and all of that good stuff about Tarbiya, keep make sure you subscribe to Islam21c. Uh, just a little plug there. Uh, I also wanted to talk about because um, you know this uh, this this week and last week there's been uh, a lot of commemorations about the Srebrenica uh, genocide yeah. and uh, right. Bosnia and the Balkans region has been in the news a lot. We uh, we noticed it was the 25th anniversary of that genocide. Yeah, in particular. Right. We had uh, last week's podcast was about that. I was wondering if you had any as a historian of Ottoman history, right? Mm-hmm. This 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 region obviously is is. Uh, Quite relevant to you, and if you had any reflections or lessons from that, from history, and maybe making a particular narrative of you know how some this region could go from what it was, I think it was called the Princess of the Caliphate or something, Prince of the Muslim World, to you know to the situation we've seen uh, precipitated twenty-five years ago. Today's today's Balkans, or what we call today's Balkans, is in Ottoman history we call it Rumeli. So Rum was perceived as being, I would argue, from Bursa all the way up to Sarajevo, right? This is, mm-hmm. and that's 100% an Ottoman project. So Anatolia, that's a Seljuk project, that's projects by other Muslim entities, but from Bursa all the way up into Sarajevo, that's Bursa is just uh, south of Istanbul, right? It's the um, east of Istanbul. East, okay. okay. So it's the first capital city of the Ottoman domains. Mm-hmm. Um, and what you see is that Muslims in this whole region are Muslims because of the Ottomans. So when we're talking mm-hmm. about not only, you know, I mean, now we just say Bosnians and Albanians in the Balkans. Mm-hmm. And there's a reduction in the way that we understand the, uh, the identity of the Bosnians and the Albanians and so forth. But you've got to understand that this whole region was invested in a way where they were at the center of power. Istanbul was a city that was mainly the technocrats and the bureaucrats were coming from the Balkans. Mm-hmm. Right. This whole project was driven by them. And in that sense, they were the problem that Bosnia has and has always had. It's just a frontier region, so Bosnia was on the cusp of the Austrians, and it was quite isolated regarding the Serbs. Whereas the Albanians, in particular, were all over the domains. You know, we had Albanians in Egypt, Albanians in Syria, Albanians in parts of Anatolia, and so forth. So as a community, they had, a, you know, a lot more, um, what you could say, military and political agency than the Bosnians had. But fundamentally, if we talk about identity and Muslims in Europe, and if there's anything Muslims mm-hmm. in Europe can learn about what's happened and how quickly Muslim identity and violence towards Muslims can unravel in a place that was for five, six hundred years as Muslim as they come. Then the Balkans is an example of that. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, and from a position of authority and power, from a position <clears throat> of reciprocating power in Istanbul to a point of just now sitting on the periphery where Muslims in Europe no longer even think about Muslims in Bosnia, and in Albania, Bosnia knows more so is thought about because of Srebrenica and the nature of that violence mm-hmm. and the way that the Bosnians themselves are maintaining the memory of Srebrenica in the sense that the Albanians haven't managed to do that in the same way. But then Srebrenica was far more aggressive and far more, you know, violent in, in, in mm-hmm. some way. So it's understandable. But the fact that still Bosnians need to do that to remind Muslims in Europe um, of their existence in of itself tells you something about how far our memories stretch and how far our connections over Muslims stretch. So we need to be, um, I think each nation state in Europe is, is consumed with itself and the Muslim communities are consumed. Yeah. And many Muslims will make the point, well, why should I care? 
well then you know we're in trouble if we're going to start to think like that mm-hmm. um so so we have you know i mean there's you, a lot to learn you know um about the uh the christchurch attacker right yeah. he had uh um he was listening to propaganda uh, propaganda kind of music of mm-hmm. uh, Serbian uh, kind of militants and right. he had the iconography and stuff and we know that the Turk as mm-hmm. a as as they you know the kind of quintessential enemy archetypal mm-hmm. enemy of mm-hmm. you know the white Englishman or mm-hmm. Christendom mm-hmm. Uh, we know that kind of projection uh, and and that insecurity of whilst Europe uh, a type of Europe was being constructed in contradistinction to the other which is the turk which is the muhammadan which is the musliman mm. maybe which is the, the 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 islamic do you think there's something as a historian do you find something in the ottoman kind of narrative or the history of how the ottomans ruled this place that kind of lent itself towards um being used by people who would you know perpetrate this kind of violence against uh, the muslims for example was it a type of because it was it was painted amongst the the kind of for example the serbian propagandists yeah. that you know we're regaining our lost um uh, kind of uh glory after the these uh, turks came and invaded us mm. and so forth do you think there's some uh, you know a kernel of truth around which all of that those lies were kind of constructed you know what's interesting? I mean, like the word Turkish. I tell you why the word Turkish fascinating for me as a historian. When I was in Serbia and Belgrade in particular, I was called a Turk. So the guy took my passport and called me a Turk. And I said, No, I'm not a Turk. I'm from England. And he goes, No, you're Turk. And I said, No, I'm from England. Okay, I'm from Pakistan. He went, No, your religion is Turk. Mm. And I remember that happened in 2010. And it stuck in my head that Turk became synonymous with Muslim. So when you look at Thomas Jefferson, Thomas yeah. Jefferson, when he's talking about Muslim, he uses the word Turk. He doesn't use the word Arab. The word yeah. Turk was synonymous with being Muslim in that sense. And so one of the interesting things about Europe, so when we go to um, South America, um, the Muslims are called are Turco, but they're actually Arabs from Syria, <laughs> Lebanon, and so forth, right? Yeah. So you can see how this constructed. So the Turkish identity in that period um, became synonymous with Islam to the point that there was some level of narrative construction that was taking place. And I'll tell you what's fascinating for me, is that European identity presents itself as an identity that simply emerges from the separation of church and state. That's not true. It's the separation of church and state and the Ottomans in opposition to them. The fear of the Ottomans. So it's the fear of the external threat and the agitation in the internal threat. It's two things which develop European identity. Mm -hmm. And that hasn't left Europe. That fear, so let's look at Brexit. When Brexit happened and UKIP put out the posters that yeah. the Turks are coming, I mean, what are we talking about? What, Suleiman, Suleiman yeah. Al-Khanoun is going to get out of his grave and get on a horse and make his way to London? That's not happening. Like, give me a break. I mean, it was so, it was masterfully done as a piece of propaganda to get what you wanted. You have to give them but that. It was, <laughs> but what it, indicates, yeah. what it indicates is there's still a deep-rooted sentiment within yeah. the Western memory that the Turk is someone that should be despised, the Turk is someone that should be feared, and the Turk is an oriental despot. And Hagia Sophia is an indication of that, actually. If you look under the undercurrent of the Hagia Sophia narratives, it's the yeah. fear of the Turk, that the Turk is coming, yeah. which is a little bit problematic to, to, to place it like that. Because what you're doing is you're trying to position Muslims or pin them into a hole again. Mm. So in some ways, Muslims have very short memories of how they are remembered 
Whereas in the West, the memories run deep in terms of what happened in regards to the Ottoman period. So this is something interesting in, my, in, in, yeah. in the way that I looked at history, which is that the Western memory of the non-Muslim is a lot more deeper in its agitation towards the Ottomans than the Muslim memory in the West regarding the Ottomans in that sense. So think Muslims are too soft. <laughs> you know what too it forgiving. is, we're too occupied. Uh, my no, personal belief is we're trying to survive. Yeah. Every day, every day, as a historian, when I was yeah. teaching in London, like one of the things I found out that young kids are just trying to make the everyday count. They, they, they're yeah. concerned in terms of should I wear the hijab, should I not wear the hijab. They're concerned yeah. about, you know, I support Man United and uh, and whatnot. You know, they, their concerns are day to day, whereas something like what I'm trying to put forward, it seems like a luxury in that yeah. sense. Because talking about identity, talking about memory, talking about your past, I mean, that, as you said before, that, that's not interesting. It wasn't interesting for me as a kid. So how can we make that relevant? How can we make it, um, to some degree, um, make young kids and their parents understand that this is important? Because in, in Spain, for example, it took a couple of generations to wipe out the Muslim memory and identity with violence, oh, no. agreed. Mm. But, you know, that's all it takes. The exception is the United States, which is the largest convert community in the in any given country is the United States, where black Muslims make up the majority and they're converts, which yeah. is not the case in Europe. And that is a narrative where they've forgotten. And they have a very unique history of that on it itself should be studied because we should understand what's happening there. Yeah. Um, so the migrant community shouldn't take, um, you shouldn't take itself as it's the bastion of Islam in Europe. Because we Albanians. Every Sorry, Muslim I think you've got a, off there a, a bit. You said the migrant community shouldn't see itself as Islam, as the bastion they, of Islam in Europe? They, yeah, they shouldn't. I mean, they should be invested in all the Muslims yeah. that exist in Europe. And everyone has a different experience. But there should be an idea <coughs> or an identity of going back to Muslim countries yeah. and seeing how things are running. The minute we become detached, and let's talk about Quds for a second. Muslims are totally detached from Quds. I understand in the 1990s yeah. the fatwas that were flying around about not going there, but now Palestinians feel so detached from Muslims around the world that Muslims can't identify the Quds question. I mean, they don't understand the Quds question. And a lot of Muslims are now saying, now that we took Ayasofya, you know, we're going to lose Quds as a result of that. Well, that's another debate <laughs> for another time, but you know what I mean? This is yeah. something we need to talk about. I actually wanted to touch on that because it's been flying around here that, uh, I don't know if it's a true quote from him, but Erdogan or somebody, one of his supporters saying, you know, I Sophia now, tomorrow is Quds. <laughs> right? That I is, was thinking that, of that is that is a quote that came up, but I think that's yeah. more rhetorical than actually, yeah, you know. Yeah. Uh, um I don't think there's a reality here. But I think that um, you know, Muslims do need to consider um, you know, the idea of losing Quds. Um I mean, the West Bank is already annexed, yeah. but the Israelis are pushing for the one-state solution. It's an occupation, and Quds is central to the Palestinian identity, but it's central to the Muslim identity. Um, the loss of that is 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 going to be problematic in some ways. But the parallels between that and, and Ayasofya are not the same, and they shouldn't yeah. be drawn as the same, just like Babadi Masjid. I mean, they tore yeah. Babadi Masjid down um, in that sense. So the, the parallels, we should be careful of making these analogies which are not helpful. Because yeah. each country, each situation has its own historical narrative with its own, you know, yeah. um, own unique perspective. And I think we have to be careful of that. Assalamualaikum guys. Last reminder, I promise. Head over to islam21c.com forward slash donate to help this movement get to the next level. So we have genuine, high quality media articulating Islam in the 21st century and developing confident Muslims impacting the world for the better. Yeah. I mean, the one thing that I would, would say about the Quds issue is 
you're right it has been separated almost mm. in a type of um, you know what some might call epistemicide you know re- right. deleting it from the the collective conscious and imagination right. of muslims right. i mean i can imagine growing up i can remember rather you know pictures on the wall of you know al-mashr al-haram makkah the kaaba yeah. on printed on john mazis yeah That's on right. prayer mats That's right. on books yeah. uh, the iconic green dome of masjid al-nabawi yeah. sallallahu alaihi wasallam and these types of images but not the iconic kind of yeah. symbols of aqsa right? right and that's something right. we're trying to do and trying to do with my uh, in in uh, sermons i deliver and stuff to to encourage people that not just visit there but make it part of our you know decoration exactly. in our house make it part of the you know what you what you uh, what you draw sketches of when you think of something islamic for activities for your children and stuff And that's the point um, that I was talking about before. Yeah. But these things have to be part of our imagination. The fact that our imagination is so yeah. distorted, or that is non-existent in our imagination, and the only thing that's happened, and Asad is right here, is that we're only thinking of the now. We're, we're stuck in presentism to the point that yeah. we have the inability to make sense of what it is that it means to belong to 1,400 years of Ummah. Yeah. So what does yeah. that mean exactly? Yeah. Well, we're, we're the Ummah of Rasulullah. Um, so we're not just an Ummah of today. We're an Ummah of a group of people that we're bound to. who have throughout history um, achieved some wonderful feats and have had some problems and there's a number of the future that we cannot see right now that we are attached to so we have to maintain this in our memories uh, it should matter mm, subhanallah um you mentioned uh, the quickly uh, on the babri masjid uh, issue mm. um how mm. could you summarize that whole episode for because someone my age you know what was that 1992 That it's in the 1990s i can't remember yeah, the exact something time. like that so yeah. i mean i was really young back then all i know is from people making references to to that mm-hmm. incident can you ex- ex- just uh, describe uh, for for maybe some of our younger or uninitiated mm-hmm. viewers i know what you're talking about you know yeah i mean, But, uh, I mean it's interesting because the babri masjid issue which is a, basically a mosque in india which was, mm-hmm. it was claimed was built on a a hindu temple right mm-hmm. and then some they found some statues that were buried there by somebody quite fortuitously but it made it look like it was there since the beginning of time and so what did they do they ripped the, the mosque down that uh, fundamentally created tensions between the muslim and hindu communities and then before we know it a lot of muslims will be in massacred as a result yeah. of it but the people have tried to make that comparison as a way of you know when the hindus took away um, our mosque in india in terms of babri masjids and the turks are doing the same with the ottoman yeah. the, the greek orthodox church but once again the parallels are just not the same i mean there was a lived community that was using that mosque and there was a particular form of propaganda which was based around lies that tore down that building and to some degrees what it also indicates is the lack of political agency that muslims have this is what happens fundamentally mm. whereas in turkey we're talking about a building that was converted 500 years ago the loss of an empire where the population of christians in this country now is no point maybe one or 0.4 percent and It, it's just not comparable because in, in this country the idea is is that it, it shouldn't have lost its mosque status yeah. it's not that we're converting a church so i mean the debates here are very different yeah, the yeah, point i'm making yeah. is that you know they're very different debates and these straw men that are keep popping up here and there to occupy muslims to make them feel very um yeah. uncomfortable is is a little bit problematic and once again the fact that you had to highlight babri masjid mm. is interesting because it's being used as as it's been weaponized and yet many young people don't even know what happened during babri masjid yeah. so these parallels are being drawn but the history of the period is not known so i mean well, once again you say straw man 
right? Mm. And you're you're right. Technically, these are straw men. However, you, you, you what you've touched on there is, I think, an issue that we find a lot of experts in an, any any subject uh, yeah. a problem or a pitfall that they fall into, right? Whether it's yeah. a historian, whether it's a academic in whatever hadith science yeah. or whatever, and that is assuming, well, you know, people generally who are experts they don't have good PR skills. <laughs> No. Generally speaking, no. right? Yeah. It might take you because experts generally are careful. They're you know judicious in their in and 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 careful in their speech and they're you know being technically correct. Mm. What it might take you five minutes to explain something properly, and, mm. and with with a degree of historical accuracy, but that's not unfortunately how the whole PR, the whole mm. media machine kind of works now. It works mm. on headlines, sound bites. Uh, and it's not just for you know, Islamic issues, like I mentioned, it's you know, medic medicine yeah. or all that kind of stuff. And the problem we have is, um, I think experts need to be be a bit more sloppy, <laughs> right? because people are being sloppy. People are being you know putting these childish sound bites out and, and all that kind of stuff, and it's based upon something fundamentally. Uh, a celebration of illiteracy and ignorance, right? Just pulling things out of nowhere. And uh, but I think I, experts need to somehow, sometimes, you know, get their hands dirty and just give the, give the kind of uh, the 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 clickbait headline. Sometimes, you know, and it's uh, I, it's a tough one. I understand what you're yeah. saying. I mean, I I don't know if I agree with the idea that we should be sloppy. I think we should yeah. be tighter. Um, but I accept the idea that we should be on the ground. That I yeah. totally get. I mean, we have to find a way. Of taking complex ideas and making them palatable for the Absolutely. mass. Absolutely, yeah. But the yeah. Con but the concern is, is that it, if we're trying to compete with media language, which is designed to keep everything uneducated, keep everything on sound bites, um, yeah. that's not what Rasulullah Sallam did with Islam. Absolutely. You know, he wasn't in in he wasn't interested in sound biting Islam. He was interested yeah. in investing <clears> in the ummah. So what we need actually is more experts to be on the ground and invest on people on the ground every day to give them um, rich. Uh, ingrained, detailed Islam so that they can carry it with some vigor, so that it doesn't shake their foundations. Yeah. If we're giving them a sloppy Islam, I'm not saying you're yeah. implying that, but <laughs> just to use that term, yeah, if, yeah, if yeah. Islam was sloppy to them, then it, that's where their foundations are weak, yeah. because the data that Islam they take in is from Twitter or from the Daily Fail or whatever it is that it may mm. be. So you know, yeah. that's one of the things I am against that a little bit. Personally, but yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, I'm not mean sloppy in in that in that sense of Islam. I mean, sure. for example, when I, when the, the the pandemic was um, was kicking kicking off, right? And you, maybe you can draw a parallel here to uh, your your expertise as well. I found that the people talking about should we close the mosque, should we do this, should we do that, they weren't medical experts, and the right. medical experts were being very careful and cautious in their language and looking at statistics and all that kind of stuff. And I was telling them. You need to just sometimes just be what what we call just just be rago a bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Just uh, don't 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 be very careful and cautious with your language. Just tell people, you know, just do this. Just don't ask me why I'm telling you this. Do this, right? You know uh, what? I while I appreciate that, I think yeah. there is a problem regarding leadership in particular. Yeah. So in the past, I mean, we would have taken Muslims as being polygons. You'd have had a scholar who has multiple skills in multiple areas and so forth. And then something happens in the 19th century where we lose the polygon, but we have what we call integrated institutions. So the military, the ulama, the, the health system, um, uh, the, 
the executive, they're integrated in a particular way where they interact with each other. But there's a total separation of these things to the point that now different mm. fields and spheres are not interacting with others. What should have happened yeah. is the communities, if we're talking about Britain, the communities, Muslim doctors, even non-Muslim doctors, uh, members of the community, yeah. ulama of the region, and uh, leaders of the region should have got together, sat down and said, what's going on? And now as a collective joint statement, all of us, this is what we're saying, and a representative represented them. So we don't have that representative um, no. nature of of discussion anymore because anyone can just go on Twitter and be an indi yeah, independent yeah. who can just say what they want. So, I mean, Rashid Rida was, in, the in 1908, made the case that now everyone has an opinion and everyone shouldn't be entitled to opinion because if that's the case, <laughs> then we're in trouble, right? So the ar argument yeah. that Rida put forward was that um, he felt that only the educated should give opinion because they're people of wisdom that's our tradition and they should only give opinion when they ask for giving opinion and then there's a way of giving opinion because they're safeguarding the community now that doesn't happen now that might be too far-fetched for today but i still believe that we should have people in our communities who are people of wisdom in the various fields who can come together and put out joint statements yeah, that didn't yeah. happen Instead, there was some contestation internally, and we looked at children fighting amongst ourselves. Shall we go yeah, open the mosque, close the mosque, open the mosque, close the mosque? In the end, yeah. it just created chaos. To be fair, I mean, uh, on a local level, there have been a lot of, um, you know, uh, yeah. joint statements and kind of councils like this. Really? You know, we have the British really? uh, Islamic Medical Association, I think, BIMA. We have MCB really? doing a lot of uh, good work in that regard, kind of bringing people right. together, alhamdulillah. But right. it's, uh, you know, we're, we're, a, we're a, a young community, so to speak. No, yeah, and, and as a young community, century. the idea is, is we're not centralized in the United Kingdom. Yeah. In other parts of the, the world, like in the United States of America, they're a lot more centralized, but then they have yeah. something like ISTA, which comes out and speaks about Hagia Sophia, and then you realize how decentralized they actually are. And they also <laughs> don't represent everyone's interests. Yeah. So, I mean, that's always going to happen, do you know what I mean? So, but there needs to be better conversations amongst the communities if yeah. we want to go. And I mean, if anything, we should learn from COVID is that how can we as a collective Safeguard yeah. their interests as a collective, or are we going to bicker amongst ourselves? Mm, I'm not mm. saying that's. I'm not saying that happened, but if that happened, then that's a problem. I mean, I wanted to actually touch on this as well. See, because you, you, I mean, you, you anyone, uh, you know, up to date with news and so forth, and and what's happening in the Muslim world will know that there are different kind of axes emerging, right? right. Some uh, won't mention them. <laughs> Some uh, <laughs> kind of uh, regimes and uh, dictators and so forth. They've been. There's been a push to rewrite the the history of the Ottomans mm -hmm. as as invaders, as right. colonizers, and that kind of stuff, occupiers. Uh, and there there seems to be an axis emerging where you have Turkey and some of its kind of allies on one hand, Erdogan. Mm -hmm. You have some, you know, Imran Khan sometimes, you have Mahathir yeah. Muhammad, um, yeah. and a few others. And then you have you know some some a kind of competing voice for for at least Sunni Islam. Right, to, to be the voice and, and the and the authority for Sunni Islam. Where do you see this um this this conflict going? Is 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 there is there space for an Ottoman two point Is that what people like Erdogan are, are trying to do? Is that what you know they should be um uh judged as I, having fulfilled or not fulfilled? I mean my I mean personally speaking, I don't know what the future holds. I mean we're in a very dangerous neighborhood. Um, I, I guess sometimes when you're living in the West um, and, you know, um, when people are protesting for matters which are far more local, they sometimes forget that in this part of the world, things are very real at times. And yeah. there, there are different forms of violence in different parts of the world. So in the West, the violence is very different than what we experience here. 
I'm not seeing an Ottoman Renaissance taking place here anytime soon, but and to some degree, um, I don't know if um, we should be looking at, you know, Islam as down, up, down, up. Um, I, I'm seeing if we had a jar with two lids, one lid is opening and the other lid is closing. You understand? So mm. to some degree, neoliberalism is deconstructing um, the, the youth, but to a, another degree, um, there are particular sentiments also felt. So it's a push and pull. So it's very difficult to know where you are on any given day, on any given time. Um, mm. So um, for now, um, I think um, we should be very cautious because I will say this, uh, somebody who lives in the region, I think the region is changing and significant shifts are happening. And COVID is an example of In which of direction? That. Sorry. Well, how, how is it changing? Is it becoming more Islamic or more... Or more polarized? I, I, I don't know is the honest answer to the question because like mm. I said, I mean, how do you judge it? What is the what is the yardstick that you compare it to? What is the, the there's the stick and that's the comparison. Um, if you're saying I'd say the length Islam of people's beds. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it, and, and some to some let's talk about Turkey because I'm in Turkey. Mm. To some degree, some people will argue that you know, with the opening of Hagia Sophia, to some degree, this is an in, in, an indication of an intent of Turkey moving in a particular revivalist movement. But then, when you speak to Tur people in Turkey as well, you have shopping malls, you have you know designer hijabs and so forth, and people saying, well, actually, in terms of morality, since the introduction of modernity and neoliberalism, that Turkish yeah. society is not actually going in a direction that we're happy with, and it depends who you speak to. So that's what I mean. Yeah. It, it's difficult to say um, is it going up or down because it it's actually you know like guacamole where you're just hitting different heads at different times <laughs> as different things pop up so i think generally it's an issue it's of a management. very diplomatic uh, academic answer mashallah it, it is you know <laughs> but, but but that's the reality on the yeah, ground you yeah. know that's actually how it is now muslims in other parts of the world with their binoculars want to have a look in terms of what they see in here mm. and all they see is the symbols but the day-to-day -day is very different. Mm, um, yeah. And likewise, um, if, if people in Turkey started talking about what Muslims are doing in the West, there's going to be a sense of agitation because a lot mm. of Muslims in Turkey feel like Muslims in the West are lost and they're gone. Now, if I said that openly, a lot of Muslims in the West, I'm sure, would say to me, that's unfair. Mm. That's un you know, that's not a reflection of what we're doing in, in, the, in the United Kingdom or United States of America or France or Germany. Yeah. So once again, I think what's happening is, is there's a clear, um, for me, um, lack of internal analysis of people telling each other where we're at. And I think mm. we really need to have Muslim on Muslim conversations about what it is that our communities, where they're, they're placed at the moment, and have these real conversations so that we can be a bit more realistic of our expectations locally, transregionally, and globally. Yeah. SubhanAllah. Mashallah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'd like to like, love to carry on uh, talking with you, but I'm conscious of time. And Jazakallah uh, Khairan for, uh, for taking time out to speak to us. Um, Thank you very much. I hope you uh, I hope you enjoyed uh, the podcast uh, at home. If you like this podcast, give it a like and a share. And remember to join us in the comments uh, below. We'll try to read all of them. If you reached uh, this far in the podcast, then congratulations, you're kind of awesome. And uh, yeah, we can. Uh, you'll find us wherever you find your podcast, inshallah. iTunes, um, Google Play Store, Castbox, Spotify, the other ones, yeah, SoundCloud, I think. But uh, yeah. Uh, from me and for the Sound Transy team, uh, I'd like to thank uh, Dr. Yaqub uh, Ahmed. Maybe we can have him on uh, in the future, inshallah. And uh, yeah, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.